You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get started with this week's episode, which is a continuation, or rather a story that we've told before from a different point of view, and one you'll certainly want to hear because our guest is just full of information and knowledge that I learned so much about during this battle. So we'll get to that coming up in a moment. Hey, but real quick, I wanted to tell you guys about an email that we got from a listener in Canada. And this is amazing. Uh, We have listeners all over the world, and we are super grateful for all those people who listen wherever they are. But this was a, a email about somebody who wasn't a veteran or wasn't in combat, but they emailed us to tell us that they were struggling with PTSD from something personal that had gone on in their life. And listening to this podcast helped them come to the realization that they can face some of those challenges and some of those things that sort of, for lack of a better term, were haunting them. And it's just emails like that that make us so happy that we're doing what we do and that the guests who have had the courage to come in here and talk about their experience, it is relatable to somebody out there somewhere. And that is really one of the biggest selling points of this podcast. And we hear it all the time and really we can never hear it enough, but just that there are people out there who hear your story and can relate to you. So it doesn't matter if the individual on this podcast was involved in some notable historical battle or not. That experience somebody else can relate to. Your experience somebody else can relate to. And we're just so grateful that we can help make those sort of connections uh, virtually or through a podcast, through a story being told, and provide some sort of insight and some sort of help to somebody else's life. So again, uh, we certainly appreciate all the feedback that everybody gives us. Make sure you guys follow us on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Great place to give us all that feedback at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Check out our website, hazardground.com. You know about our promotion with Amazon. On that website, hazardground.com, click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. Also works from your smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com, it'll direct you right to the app. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping. We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, and we donate it right back to some of the great charities You've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. Don't forget to leave those. Don't forget to leave us those reviews. So important. Those reviews are part of this quirky little algorithm that they have out there that helps grow this podcast. So take a second, write a review. Just say, "Hey, great show. Love the host because he's good looking." Well, okay, that's just a personal opinion, but you get the point. Leave a quick review, and that'll help us grow this podcast immensely. And we think this story coming up is helping grow this podcast immensely. It's one that we've told before from a different point of view. Very excited for you guys to hear this week's guest. Joining us this week on the Hazard Ground is currently a U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel with 16 years of service, multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. It was his cavalry troop that was involved in the 2009 Battle of Kamdesh in Afghanistan. That battle went on to become a book and a movie called The Outpost. He is also currently pursuing his PhD at Duke University. He is Stoney Portis joining us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Stoney, welcome, man. Thanks so much for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. Yeah, listen, I am very excited to talk to you. Um, But when I started doing some research into your background, I got a little nervous because you are definitively smarter than I am, and that kind of bothers me. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> don't don't let that fool you. Don't let the statistics fool you on that. No, listen, I mean, a PA, PhD from Duke ain't nothing to shake it. Listen, a degree from Duke ain't nothing to shake a shake stick at, let alone a PhD. But uh, just real quick before we get into your military background, I mean, not many guys who are in the military have a PhD. They might get it after they get out, but what's the PhD? Yeah, well, the, you know, the PhD is uh, is in literature. And I uh, and, and for me, I, I previously spoke – or. Uh, taught, excuse me, at West Point 
in the Department of English and Philosophy. And um, I'd, I'd done that following my tour in Afghanistan as a company commander. And, you know, I had finished with my battalion XO time and had been given the opportunity to return back for my Ph.D., and to go back to teach again at West Point. And, uh, you know, I'm grateful to my boss and to the department there because uh, I told him, you know, hey, if if, uh, if I'm selected to command a, a battalion, I would really like to take that opportunity before returning. And uh, lo and behold, you know, I was recently selected to command a combined arms battalion down in Fort Stewart. And and the team at, at West Point is being generous enough to let me do that. So I have a, 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 the opportunity to command soldiers again after this, and then I'll head back up to West Point. But, you know, I do my dissertations studying contemporary war literature uh, that features soldiers who face challenges like post-traumatic stress and thoughts of suicide, to, to be succinct. Yeah, and something we'll, we'll get into uh, as we go along. But when you get down to Fort Stewart here in Georgia, look me up, man. Let's get together for a beer. So yeah, absolutely. Like, excited to have you here in the South. All right, but let's go back to the beginning. Um, West Point, so obviously that's where you went. How and why did you end up there? Man, I wish I could tell you. I, I knew from a very young age that that was what I wanted to do. You could have asked me when I was seven years old, what are you going to be when you grew up? And I would have told you an Army officer and that I want to go to West Point. And I don't know who put that in my head because there's, there's no – uh, West Point alums in my family, but that's what I wanted to do. So that's uh, where I applied to in high school and, and went straight from there as a army powerlifter, uh, all four years while I was there competing and, um, then went on as an armor officer from there for future service in the military. Yeah. The powerlifting thing lends to armor, right? Because, uh, you know, powerlifters don't like to run anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the myth. It also helps being a short squat guy uh, when you're trying to get in and out of tanks. So. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as, you know, the process of getting into West Point, I mean, nothing throughout high school or anything else deterred you? This was always just a, a straight line, point A to point B for you? That is what I wanted to do. I mean, I didn't even apply to backup schools really? in high school. It was just, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to West Point and there's not really another option. No one ever tried to talk me out of it. You know, my, my dad enlisted in the army in 62 and it served for a time. And, uh, so I, I think he appreciated the idea of service. You know, my family had instilled that I grew up on a cattle ranch where we were always, uh, you know, long hours, hard working. And so I think that, uh, lent itself to the same type of work ethic, uh, going into the army. As you mentioned, you graduated in 04. So you're at West Point when nine 11 happens, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. To talk about a, a complete, uh, change of perspective <laughs> a cataclysmic one uh I, you know i was a uh, gosh i guess i was a sophomore we call them yearlings there and i remember to this day when the towers fell you know we i was in uh in class in spanish class and a chaplain comes in and takes one of my classmates out of the room i won't, I won't name his name but you know his dad had been working in the pentagon and it uh, had died. Unfortunately, he had been working in the desk per his office, which was, you know, the side of the Pentagon that was hit directly by the plane. And so, uh, you know, it hit close to home almost immediately. And, and, and for us, you know, and, and I know you, you joined before nine 11, you know, it's, it, it was a calling long before we were at war in Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah. And, and you know, you mentioned how you got a, a West Point classmate pulled out. Uh, we have told other West Point classmates who have been in that similar situation, Joe Quinn, whose brother, uh, was killed in the towers. You know, he went through that same thing at West Point where they had to, you know, go and get him and be like, you know, your brother is in the towers. And, you know, obviously Joe has told the story several times before, including here on the hazard ground. But, you know, uh, when you see that happen to a classmate, 
Or do you get scared? I mean, again, you're you're a 19 year old kid at this point in time. Is there any thought that whoa, I made might have made a wrong decision? You know, I I have to believe that that flashes through everybody's mind. Um, I I don't remember what I was thinking at the time, but I do distinctly remember uh, it was a, probably a couple three weeks after nine uh, eleven when. Uh, you know, my company and I are playing, you know, probably like ultimate Frisbee or something out on the, the uh, sports fields, athletic fields. And we see a plane uh, flying low above us. And, you know, it's a, it's a airline, it's a commuter jet. And we all just kind of paused where we were and looked up. And, you know, I'm sure some of us were thinking like, what's going to happen to this plane? Is is it going to die bomb? And others were thinking, wow, we are, we're already flying again after such a horrific event. But but I think by and large, you know, it, it just it probably sent some shockwaves through all of us to 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 think, wow, this is our destiny. This is this is what's going to happen to us in terms of uh, being part of the response force uh, should we go to war. And then you know, of course, lo and behold, uh, the you know Anaconda and the invasion of Iraq kicks mm-hmm. off. So. It's interesting because I wonder how much at the Academy you guys heard the language change, right? I mean, we do this now, right? And we constantly, when we're talking to subordinates or we're, we're, you know, uh, talking with fellow peers in the military, we use the phrase, what's what you need to do to be ready to go to war, right? Because when we say it so commonplace, because we've been doing it for 20 years now. But was that something that they said to you guys at West Point? Because most of those teachers at that point in time hadn't gone to war because... If, if they were still hanging around from Vietnam, they were lucky enough. And this small few that went to Panama, Grenada, or Somalia weren't really teachers at West Point. Yeah, you know, I think that there's, you know, an internal zeitgeist within the academy where that's always in the daily vocabulary of, of how we think, what right. we say, how, you know, how we even structure uh, solving problems for geometry, as an example. But I do distinctly remember one of my professors at the time saying, this was the day after the attacks, you know, we were right back in class and, and he says, Hey guys, I want you to pause and understand for a moment what this really means. You know I mean? This is going to change everything for you, for the rest of your careers, your, your careers, you know, it was a Lieutenant Colonel. He's like, your careers will look distinctly different from mine. And then he challenged us with this thought and it's, this stuck with me. He said, you know, you're yearlings now, and you've got three years until you graduate. Uh, just because you cross the graduation stage and commission as a second lieutenant does not mean that all of a sudden someone flipped the switch and now you're ready to, to take a platoon to combat. So if you haven't already started asking yourself this, now is the time to ask yourself, what am I doing today to make myself the leader that I want to be? And, and what's my plan for tomorrow? And And just, you know, hitting home that it is a, a gradual, iterative uh, process of leadership development. And, and I think that that same analogy of that light switch really holds true no matter what kind of job we take on or challenge that we face. All right. So uh, you graduate from the academy. Uh, it's on to Armor Basic right after that, I assume? Yes, sir. Yep, Straight on to Armor Basic at Fort Knox, Kentucky. And then beyond that, I head down to... Um, the 1st Cavalry Division in Fort Hood. Mm-hmm. Bucky. My old first sergeant yeah. at Fort Hood used to call it Bucky. So that's what uh, <laughs> I always referred to it as. But uh, all right. And then, you know, do you feel like 
at this point, for a kid who saw nothing of his life other than to be an Army officer, uh, and you know you're going to end up getting involved because, as you mentioned, Iraq kicks off before you graduate, so you've got two wars going on. Like, are you feeling not anxious in the right word I'm looking for? I, I guess are you feeling sort of the energy of getting into combat? I think so. You know, th- I'm the eternal optimist. I remember being at West Point looking up around the 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 gray granite buildings and some kids would be miserable. And I was just thinking like, gosh, how, how lucky am I to be here right now? And, and the same held true for when I went and took my, my first platoon uh, in the uh, uh, Charlie Troop 10th Cavalry Regiment. It was a brigade reconnaissance troop at the time. You know, I think that my biggest concern wasn't, am I going to go to war? It was actually, I am I going to miss it? <laughs> Right. <laughs> like, am I going to miss my chance? And how naive of an ignorant. Of well, a, of we a we all were that naive, Stoney. I mean, right. we, there, there's a lot of us who go, well, you know, this is going to be over real quick because our our last taste of, of combat was Desert Storm and it was over in three weeks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I would tell you that that lingo continues to exist at West Point among cadets having uh, spoken there even very recently. You know, it's still within uh, many of their questions and concerns. But, you know, I, I didn't actually deploy until. 2006, and I, I was extended during that deployment to what became a fairly standard 15-month rotation during the surge. But I remember from you know 2004 until late 2006, thinking and wondering as I watched my classmates come back with combat patches and with you know stories about how they were tested in combat and how they rose to the occasion. You know, am I going to get that opportunity for a test? And more importantly for me, like, am I going to rise to that occasion? And so certainly it was it was in the back of my mind. Yeah, and, and again, I, I we discuss it a lot. Uh, you know, sort of the preparation for combat uh, and, and what it's like. Did you feel like as you're going through all this that you know you were trained for the job that you were about to do? Hearing stories from other guys, did you feel like that there was a sense of I'm as ready for this as I'm ever going to be? I don't feel like I was ever so ready that I didn't think I needed to continue to train or to do something to prove myself. No, of course But not. I did feel relatively prepared. I think for me, the real shock was when I was moved from being a line platoon leader to being a headquarters platoon leader and a, and a troop executive officer that I, I started feeling uh, the weight of that responsibility because, you know, West Point, at least from my experience, was great at preparing me for leading a platoon. Um, but I didn't have any more training or preparation to be a executive officer or a staff officer than any other, you know, kid on the block. And so as far as that was concerned, you know, I think that I had some, some apprehension about taking on that role, uh, soon after we deployed, that, that was certainly the case. When you hear that you're heading to Iraq for the first time, thoughts, feelings, and do you know where you're going? Do you know what you're doing? Excited, nervous, ready. You know, and, and we we were able to project pretty well. I've heard of some some stories of units preparing for one type of, of theater and deploying to an entirely different one. I mean, we, we knew we were going to Camp Taji. We knew that our, um, our FOB Taji and, and that our uh, troop that we were taking over for had a patrol base along Route Cobra along the, the Tigers River. And so as far as that's concerned, you know, we did everything that we could to study the language, the culture, and to think through 
um, what at the time was a fairly uh, new concept of counterinsurgency operations and, and studying what the possibilities were for that. And so, you know, as far as preparation, that's, that's how that looked. And what I do remember, you know, my biggest concern was that Fob Taji was so huge and our vehicles required so much maintenance. It was like, I don't know exactly, but I would venture to say a couple kilometers between where we lived and uh, where we actually conducted maintenance on our vehicles. And so, you know, I, I addressed this concern with my dad and, and he and my father-in-law got together and raised money and like the whole village bought us, you know, the, the town uh, bought us a ch- and bought us my troop that is uh, a Kawasaki mule. Uh, and so, you know, like a, a gator, right? And so here I was like a, a first lieutenant on Fob Taji and uh, had this little gator like giving, giving lifts to soldiers back and forth just so we could make sure we were always turning wrenches on our vehicles. And so for me, I mean, th- there was an immediate sense of someone's got my back. You know, I, I'm coming from a place, from a home where I'm blessed to have people who who love me. My soldiers are blessed to have people who love them and support them and what we're trying to do over there. So much so that they're willing to give over some of their own money to give a kid a, a, a ride, if you will. So I, I got to know, how did they get it over there? So as the executive officer, I was also the unit movement officer. Right. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, so I took it, I took it through all, you know, we got it right before we left. So I took it through the Aegis to get it approved and certified for shipment, packed it in one of our own mill vans and, put it over there with the rest of the freight. In fact, it stayed over there. I donated it to the unit that replaced us. So for all I know, there could be, you know, some random person on Thob Taji taking a Kawasaki mule off of some sweet jumps or something. That is the most useful story as it pertains to the 40-hour humor course I've ever heard. I got to tell yeah. you. <laughs> it really is. I, I, that's well the, said. It's the first time it ever made sense to me um, because I went through it as a lieutenant. So I, I, I know it was a really long time ago, but still. Um, anyway, it's weird, uh, that we probably cross paths. Uh, when did you get oh, to Taji? Sure. Um, October, 2006. Okay. No, then we did miss each other. All right. I was gone by, uh, yeah. by April of 06, but, uh, I made more okay. convoys to Taji than you could shake a stick at, uh, down from, oh, yeah. from Biap. So, um, route Tampa was a lot of fun back in the day. All right. So you get there on ground, um, do, when, when you land and, and you, you get there, do you feel like, you know, uh, you guys are ready? Do you, do, do you get a sense of, okay, what we thought we were going into is not what we're here, for, you know, not what we're doing? I mean, does all that stuff sort of add up? Because there's always a gap between what you talk about in the States and what you see on ground. You know, I felt like I did a lot of research and I had some really good mentors. One of my professors at West Point ended up being my squadron S3 and then my squadron executive officer. Oh, wow. And so I was able to have some really candid conversations with him prior to and throughout the deployment. Um, so I would say that I felt prepared. You know, it was kind of funny, though, because he had participated in the in the invasion and, you know, his his mantra, which, you know, is you know, become quite cliche as, hey, we're at war and bureaucracy breaks out. And so just the number of T's that had to be crossed and the I's that had to be dotted to be able to to conduct a mission uh, flabbergasted him. For me, I, I knew no different. But outside of the administrative uh, stuff, you know, even, even the ROE, as I first experienced in 2006, um, you know, was, was different and had evolved by the time that I went back to Afghanistan in 09 and 10. 
Um, you know, I, I think this, you know, probably best illustrated with a, with a, a quick story, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Um, so, you know, I, I, I share this story about my first day in combat, what I call my first day in combat. And really what it is, is it's the day that we took the transfer of authority, right? So like TOA occurs, right? So that morning, um, we wake up and, and we're at the patrol base and there's a soldier from the unit that we're replacing who set to fly out that that evening and we learn that he has taken his own life right so this is his last day of the deployment 15 months and he went out by the generator of that patrol base and put a nine millimeter suit to his head oh god and um the the guy that i was replacing a, a really good friend of mine from west point a classmate of mine named eric uh was obviously deeply troubled by this it was it was one of his soldiers that he had as a platoon leader and and one of his soldiers it was very close to him as as the troops xo and um, so he's brooding all day long, Eric is, understandably so. And, I, and I'm walking along with Eric to uh, the flight line as he's uh, about to fly out as well, since it's now in our authority, in the area of operations, that is. And he finally breaks the silence and looks at me and he goes, Stoney, the sooner you accept the fact that you're not going home, the easier it is for you to do your job. Yeah. And for me, I was like, well, man, that's a, that's a really pessimistic negative thing to say to the guy that just started his tour. Um, and, and I didn't scoff, but I thought to myself, well, man, that's, um, really the negative way of looking at it. But looking back on his perspective, then, uh, you know, th- that wasn't the first, uh, casualty or even the 10th casualty that they had seen, uh, that deployment. And so I, I understand far better now, after having experienced that first day and many days over of combat, uh, what he meant by that. And, and, and then that night, we conduct our first combat patrol. And during that patrol, uh, we are subject to a uh, IED-initiated ambush which with an EFP. And this is still when we're driving around with vehicles with uh, – armor and and windshields bolted to the side because they don't have the the good up armor that we eventually got well yeah um i had switched places with the nco in the the truck commander's seat that got hit uh moments before and midway through the deployment i would say probably about 10 minutes before they got hit and um and that nco who's a father of three children one of whom was one month old at the time um died. And so I feel like in that first day of combat, I got a survey of all the different types of deaths and fatalistic mindsets that one might experience in combat. And it was a real wake up call. And it was it was a a, a torturous day and, and several days that followed. But I also in some ways am grateful to have had such an eye opening experience on day one, because there wasn't a day after that that I didn't really take what I was doing seriously and that I really wasn't thinking about it uh, hard. Now, in time, I, I did get paranoid uh, that I was going to be the next one to get hit. You know, it, it, at times it does feel like, at least in 2006, 7, and 8 Iraq, oh, yeah. that you're driving around just waiting to get blown up. Yep. Um, but there was a point that I distinctly remember in the tour where I realized or I, I came to the, the, the mental framework of thinking, you know what? I, I'm not going home. I, I, I've just got to consider the fact that I'm probably already dead. And all of a sudden, like as, <laughs> as pessimistic as that might sound, I was able to focus on 
the present and do right. my job with far greater attention to detail in the moment than I probably ever would have done. And so I think I finally grasped what Eric was trying to tell me on that day one. Yeah, but see, I would um, I would counter that it is um, a, a you know a, a morbid or a uh, you know fatalistic thought. I, I would tell you that coming to terms with your own mortality is not a skill that you possess. You have to learn it uh, and you have yeah. to be able to understand it. And, and listen, a, a lot of people, I, you know, I, I'll just say this plainly. Like, I feel like I'm an, an existential guy. Like I think that way, right? Like I, I have a, an ability to think outside my own mind and, and look at the world through my experiences. I've been able to look at the world through a different prism because, you know, combat teaches you that. Right. And so I didn't learn that skill until, you know, midway through my first deployment. And it sort of, it sort of came to me in, in ways that I didn't expect. Like, you know, you talked about it, you were just waiting to get hit, right? And there would be times, you know, again, I, my first deployment, I was going outside the wire every three, maybe four days. You know, it was like two or three times a week in certain cases, sometimes four or five, depending on what was going on. And there would be mornings where I would get up and would start getting ready. And from the moment I woke up out of bed, I've, I've said this before on the pod that I had this sinking feeling in my stomach like today's a day. Today's a day. Like, it has to be. I can't keep going outside the wire and nothing happens before something bad really, really happens. And I would be, be almost consumed by it to the point where I couldn't even get my soldiers ready. Couldn't even help get vehicles prepped. Couldn't even help get radios, you know. And so I developed this own little practice. I'd walk behind the building, right? Like, I'd just focus on the, all the tasks that need to be done. And right before we left, I'd walk behind the building and I would just sit there to myself and breathe and pray. And I would literally just say, God, if this is my last day on earth, you know, like... Just take care of my family. Let them know how much I love them. Please let me do what I am trained to do in combat and think of others before I think of myself. And, you know, things like that and just go through all the things that I wanted to make sure that I, I had to remind myself, knowing that this might be my last moment on earth. Then I'd take a deep breath and exhale and forget about it. And I would just lock in. You know, it was kind of like, you know, as if you've ever seen the movie For the Love of the Game and Kevin Costner's on the mound, he says, clear the mechanism. That's how I'd clear the mechanism. And I'd block out all the noise and be able to go focus on my job. But I had to learn that skill all the way through. And so, uh, Eric, I think if somebody had told me that at the beginning of my deployment, I would have invested more time into thinking about that concept much earlier on. Now, fortunately, nothing happened to me, you know, before... I learned that skill because when things happened after it, I was much better equipped to deal with it because I knew what the scoreboard said, so to speak, right? We were always going to be trailing up on the scoreboard. You know, we were always going to be chasing to try to catch up. And so I, I, I just say that to, to add to sort of the idea that, you know, coming to grips with your own mortality, it, maybe people with cancer do it. I, I've never had cancer, thank God. Nobody, you know, I know people close to me have had, but you have to process that information on your own. There's nobody who can help you do it. Well, and I think that some when you do it the first time, uh, that it becomes uh, it becomes more plausible to get in the the mindset more quickly when you have to do it again, right? It's something it's nothing to ever lose, right? I mean, this is I mean, this is work that has been studied for you know centuries, right? I mean, even look at you know the German continental philosopher Martin Heidegger, right? When he talks about Dasein, you know, he's he's a guy that said that our human existence in the world becomes what he called authentic in the face of its own mortality, you know, at the point at which it, it'll no longer exist, right? And so hopefully in the process, it makes us better at our jobs, not to to try and make it have some type of utility, but, you know, in terms of thinking about what, what does thinking about your mortality provide, 
you know, once since of being. <laughs> but again, I, and I'm getting philosophical. No, well, listen, and when I told you you were smarter than me, it's the first time anybody's ever quoted Martin Heidegger on this podcast. So don't give me your your PhD <laughs> ain't that big of a deal. All right, so let's let's just clear, clear that up for the record. Well, someone will call it and correct uh, correct my interpretation. I'm, I assure you. All right, so you, you you sustain a loss your first day in Iraq. What is the op tempo like, and how much? of that sort of uh, was the wake-up call that maybe your unit needed or did it sort of persist to the point where it got almost untenable? Um, you know, it's hard to remember. I, I I remember it as though it was coming in waves. There was times where we would be out of patrol and, um, you know, all of a sudden the dust in front of our feet would start kicking up because there was a sniper a couple hundred meters away that was taking aim at us. And, other times, you know, we'd go weeks on end without anything happening. And then, you know, it'd be several weeks in a row of, uh, of just getting blown up. Uh, and, you know, there would be peaks and valleys to that. But I, I always said that if I were making a, a, a game, you know, a video game like World of Warcraft or something, if I really wanted it to be realistic for Iraq circa 2006, 7, and 8, um, I would make – several stages of the game where all you're doing is staring at the back of a home VC. You know? So, um, so I, I think in terms of that, it, you know, I wouldn't say it was untenable, but <clears throat> it was nothing like it was for me when I was in Afghanistan. And I remember asking a company commander who had a previous deployment to Afghanistan, the differences between the two um, when we were in Iraq at the time. And he said, Afghanistan is just biblical, and it's, and it's it's far more vicious. And I never, really, but when all, you know, the the veterans out there know this all too well, like there's nothing more frustrating than getting hit by an IED and not being able to take out your aggression on a trigger man or on a squad that's waiting in an ambush for you. Um, you know, you're just driving around waiting to get blown up, and there's you know, there's some frustration in that. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and and. Yeah, I, I went through a similar feeling. Uh, I just remember uh, after we got hit with an IED again, I, I just remember kept screaming, they're still trying to fucking kill me. You know, like it was, it got to a point where it just got annoying and I couldn't figure out, you know, it, you have no idea who it is, right? It just, uh, it, that, that sort of stuff, I think the lack of control in that sometimes can be consuming. Mm-hmm. You know, what people don't think about also, uh, Mark, is, um, you know, people will die, but you have to keep going. And for me, the, the most quintessential memory I have of that fact was we had a catastrophic IED uh, kill uh, most of a Bradley crew. And our mechanics did this amazing job at rebuilding this Bradley fighting vehicle. And they gave it back to us. And like, none of the soldiers want to write. But we can still, at least we think we can still smell the, the, the blood. Uh, in the vehicle from our fallen comrades and uh, no one thinks through like how to manage uh, <laughs> something like that. You know, how do you manage getting soldiers, not just to get back on the road, but if it's a vehicle, they dare not set foot in. So as things continue on this deployment and you're starting to deal with more and more, is there a sense of that? It's too much. Is there a sense? Is the loss starting to, you know, affect your mental state at all? No, I, I think that uh, we crossed that threshold not because of the quantity of losses, which I mean, let's let's be fair. Any loss is too many. Sure, yeah. But um, 
I think for us, it was the feeling of when we got word that we were getting extended and then any, any casualty that occurred after the original 12 month mark was like an extra punch in the gut. And yeah. that's when I noticed that, that some of the team uh, and the guys and gals on the team were really taking it harder in a way that may be more psychologically related than just your usual grief, if you will. I don't know if that's even a fair way of. No, I, I can it. understand that because there's a sense of we shouldn't be here. Right. You know, we did right. what we were supposed to do. We agreed to a year. We said a year. Everybody told us a year. That's what we all signed up for. We're supposed to be home and we're still here. Right. And, and so, you know, there was that, there was that challenge. Um, and, you know, I remember at, by that point in the, in the deployment. So, you know, we ended up having a 16 month deployment. Um, I had transitioned over to be the S1 for the battalion for uh, 1-7 cavalry. And so, you know, I'm spearheading along with the chaplain, the memorial services. And it felt like we're just doing like one memorial service after another, after another. And uh, I mean, that, that hit pretty hard. Uh, you know, I think a, a lot of people don't appreciate, you know, there's, there's the obvious trauma that soldiers endure and family members endure when someone dies. But then there's the additional trauma for like, the folks in the back background who are trying to make, you know, make this easier. You know, I, I, I would never want to be a medic as an example, or I never want to yeah. be a chaplain as an example. But I remember, you know, for me, the distinct challenges were even as the S1, when my old troop had uh, casualties, I would be the one that would go down to mortuary affairs to identify the casualty and the remains, right? And someone has to do that, right? And someone has to plan the memorial ceremony. And so not to be like, oh, boo-hoo, but, it, you know, I, I think you just get a greater appreciation for how wide-reaching a soldier's uh, death or serious injury can be for a unit. That's a really bad job to have, by the way. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, wow. Uh, being asked to go identify people, you know, on a, on a routine basis do you ever think that that did more sort of mental damage than maybe some of the other stuff you experienced? You know, I think maybe, especially when it comes down to Jeremy Mulher, who was the first death uh, on that day one that I was referring to, you know, I was the one who went and identified the remains. And, and, and I still think about that mainly because, you know, talking about, you know, our earlier conversation with uh, facing our own mortality, there's nothing there's no greater reminder of your own mortality than looking at a friend who, you know, just several hours before was alive and talking to you uh, and, and no longer is. And so for me, you know, I think it was just uh, a, a pretty big um, moment realization, if you will, a revelation of not only is this shit for real, but you know, death is final. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, and, and I'm laughing, but it's, you know, it's, let's think of it well, maybe you, in terms of dark humor. No, <laughs> but you it. laugh because you hear it so much and then you experience it and it's almost like, well, duh, I knew this already. You know, like, it's like, we all knew this, but then you, you, you live through it and it just, it, it, it's, it's an experience that words don't sort of, you know, encompass. Um, and, and, and I think that, you know, as far as understanding that uh, and how you process that is different for everybody. So uh, I, I, I don't 
I don't think our audience or anybody has an issue with the chuckle there. I think I think we all understand kind of where this is coming from. Uh, the deployment ends. Uh, sort of again, existential question here. If uh, if if Stony Portis at the end of that deployment could tell the 2004 graduating West Point Stony Portis anything, what would he say to prepare him for what he just went through? Uh. Just that it's real and it can happen to you. You know, we're really great as an army and uh, speaking from West Point's education process of uh, studying history, of thinking about vignettes. And in that sense, lessons that you quote unquote learn are are really easy to just objectify as something that occurs outside of you. You know, you never you never think that you're going to be the guy that on day one something like that happens to, or that you're extended and then extended again and then soldiers die. And so, you know, I guess if nothing else, it's, Hey, this is real. It can really happen to you. And so really prepare. And there's a difference I think between physically preparing and mentally preparing or right. spiritually preparing. And I think that you know, at least for me personally, I probably did more of the physical preparation than I did of any other form. And so and I think it'd be that. I don't know what that would look like, though, except for, you know, hindsight, knowing those things now that I can do to blow off some steam or to relieve stress, you know, go for a run or write about it uh, to put my emotions into words. You know, I mean, those are things that would have been really good tools to have in 2006 when all this happened. Is there any shine off of this career that you so badly wanted to have as a young kid at this point? Um, I think that, I mean, it it would be a lie to say no, right? There's, um, I think that I am not the guy who, uh, was always into war movies and war novels. I mean, I did, I did read and write my, or read and watch my fair share, but I think, you know, it's, uh, you can, you can talk about, how hard combat is, but uh, nothing's going to prepare you for uh, the smell of burning bodies, right? And not to be morbid, but I think if there's a shine that comes off of it, it's like, this is a tough job. And and uh, there's no right answer. Like there's no, there's no clear definitive black, white, right or wrong. And I think coming from an institution like West Point where um, we really think hard about ethical decision-making um, that sometimes even if it's black and white, it can sure still feel gray. Right. I, I, not to speak too metaphorically, but I think, I think that's probably the shine that, that w- would have been gone. There's no, the idealist was gone. <laughs> no. And I, that I totally get. Um, but that said, you know, now the army's asking you to go back Um you know, speaking of philosophers, and I forget who it was, maybe it was Sun Tzu, who said, you can ask any man to go into combat once, but the toughest thing is asking him to go back. And yeah. uh, now they're asking you to go back because it's what the job entails. Do you have a different perspective on, you know, the guy who was so excited and thought he was going to miss it? Now is it a, yeah, I kind of had my fill of this. I'm not really sure I need to do this again. <clears throat> You know, I thought long and hard about getting out. In fact, I had originally branch detailed. Uh, my detail was to the armor branch, and then my 
commissioning uh, was as a military intelligence officer. And so the time time was up in the armor community uh, and I hadn't even been on a tank yet. And, um, and so for me, I think that the, the bigger concern wasn't, is this the right career? It was, Hey, I want to stay armor. And if I can't do that, then I'm going to get out of the army. Um, and so, you know, th- th- that was undoubtedly the bigger concern. You know, back to your previous question, it reminds me of um, a book by Matthew Hefty. Uh, he published, I think, 2018, maybe a little bit before then, uh, called A Hard and Heavy Thing. So it's a, it's a novel about just, you know, soldier that has multiple deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. And his best friend is driving down Route Tampa, frustrated. And he says, you know, you know what we're doing here? Nothing. You know, we're just driving around waiting to die, just driving around waiting for someone to key a radio so some artillery around can, can, can take my legs off. But then he goes on to say, you know, the only way to be relevant in this war is to be in contact, either take casualties or dish them out just so we can make this look like an actual war. And I, I think that if there's one frustration that I had coming out of Iraq at the time is that um, – I knew who the bad guys were and I knew it was my job to go kill the bad guys. Right. And I knew who the good guys were and I knew it was my job to protect the good guys. But outside of that, I, I remember being frustrated that I could not articulate um, a specific mission and intent for why my soldiers and I were doing the things that I was doing. And so I felt beyond frustrated as a leader moving from Iraq to Afghanistan, uh, being in a position where I had to tell my soldiers, Hey, um, it, it may be a bit nebulous as to why we're why we're here. So let me give you a reason, right? And that's frustrating. We all want a sense of purpose. We don't want to have to make relevance ourselves. No, I, I you hit all the same notes as I kind of went through uh, emotionally in my deployment. I, I can distinctly remember having that conversation with a major, um, you know, after constantly going outside the wire. And I, I remember telling him that, you know, I said, you know, we're not going to win this thing, are we? You know, like, what are we doing here? Like, at the end of the day, we're going to leave, and this thing's all going to fall apart again. And I'll never forget that Major told me two words, small victories. Take the ones that you can get when you can get them, and that's what you have to live off of. Because at the end of the day, nobody in one deployment is going to win that entire war, not not operationally or strategically, right? And, And nobody in multiple deployments is going to do that. So what you can control is the small victories in front of you. And that's what you need to live off of. And I I always, I remember that conversation distinctly. I can, I can paint the picture in my head of having it. And uh, it always stuck with me. Yeah. Well said, well said. And and I think it's something that um, takes some time to, to get enough perspective to think like that. At least for for me, it did, you know, it wasn't until I was a, a a troop commander and, and one with some time under my belt that I probably would have appreciated that same statement all right so you end up in afghanistan uh you're back again and now you're in a whole different sort of world and a whole different set of combat rules and everything else what is this mission what are the expectations do you know where you're going what's going on yeah so there was about a two-week time frame from the career course at fort knox uh to deploying and so i remember getting to fort carson and just doing everything I can to get like the household goods in order just to be able to deploy in time. And so I, I did not have the same type of uh, awareness and sense of direction for what we were doing 
as a brigade uh, or even a battalion that I did for uh, for my deployment to Iraq as a lieutenant. Uh, but I did initially deploy as an assistant S3 with the Special Troops Battalion of uh, of all things and uh, probably one of the best educations that I got. You know, And so for me, I, um, I deployed in in June, early June, and uh, was in that position for about four months until the brigade commander came over and said, hey, you're going to go take command of an of a outpost and a troop uh, over in 361 Cav, and that was that was B Troop. You know, and up until that point, um, it was really just a new appreciation of how different the types of combat were between Iraq and Afghanistan. All right, the small little post that they tell you, combat outpost that they tell you you're going to go take charge of. Uh, do you know anything about combat outpost Keating at the time? Very, very little. Um, I had a, a, a good friend who was a troop commander in a sister company to the one that I was taking and had like the next combat outpost over. And so he kind of gave me a sense of what life was like. And... Um, you know, I came from being based out of Fabtaji most of the time in a, in a little patrol base the rest of the time in Iraq. And you never would have been able to convince me that there was a whole different army where the cooks actually cooked their own meals and that people uh, didn't get showers <laughs> on a weekly basis. You know? Yeah, <laughs> well, Taji was living the high life. Great chow hall there, by the way. That's right. That's great, right. Great that's chow right. hall but, there. Um, but, you know, and that certainly wasn't the case for the patrol base, but even the patrol base was in – close enough shot to be able to 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 get there in a, in a couple hours uh, if you need to if, you know if, if you're under contact even um, but no look I, I knew it was really isolated and um, other than that I learned almost everything about that place by seeing it or doing it with my own eyes when I got there yeah. and that was in you know at the end of September of 2009 when you get there, um, and for those who are listening, we did uh, an earlier episode with Andrew Bunderman, who was the one of your lieutenants who uh, was there for the Battle of Kamdash. Um, you know, and I, I have to ask you the same question because I asked him. When you get to this place and you're sitting there looking at it, and for people who don't know what it looks like, just Google Combat Outpost Keating, K-E-A-T-I-N-G. Uh, militarily, you can't pick a worse freaking location. Like, there was, <laughs> to this day, and again, I asked her the same thing. Are you sitting there just still flabbergasted at the idea that somebody in our ranks thought this is a great spot for us to camp out here for a while? Yeah, yeah, you know, it's. I mean, great... ROTC cadets wouldn't pick this place. <laughs> it's a great illustration of uh, of mission creep or, or, or what happens, you know, just from from gradual want of attention. <laughs> you know, when something goes from being a very temporary. Uh, outpost where you fly in and out just to pay contracts to that it evolves into that over time. But no, it's your point. I remember talking to my grandmother sometime after the battle and after that deployment and she, you know, even she was like, Stoney, I didn't think that you were supposed to be at the bottom of the mountain. And so, you know, when like your 80 year old grandma knows uh, that it's tactically indefensible, then it should be fairly obvious. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the explanation that I try and give is um, there's a there's a lot of reasons why why that 
uh, outpost was selected where it was. But one of the main was that was that the strategy of counterinsurgency underpinned the war effort, and that we had to have locations that were tied closer to local populace. And so, um, you know, that's that doesn't make it easy to swallow. But um, if I could, before we get into this part of the conversation, what I'll just say up front is um, most of the things that I am going to talk about on on this time period of my career is as a commander who either wasn't there, but I'm I'm retelling other soldiers' stories, or through my very very small uh, uh, point of view of the times when I was there. And, and I know that we'll get into that, but I, I would, I would definitely encourage your listeners to go and listen to Andrew Bunnerman's uh, interview because it's phenomenal. He does a phenomenal job painting that battle and that scene. Uh, but to, to your point, Mark, is that when, when I first got there, I landed on the top of the mountain at the observation post, OP Fritchie and patrolled down the mountain. And I remember like the further down we went for that patrol. Um, the uh, the lower my jaw hang hung, and right, my, my mouth just got wider and wider. And like, oh shit! I cannot believe <laughs> this is where it is. And I remember just like red hatting it while I was going down, thinking if I, you know, if I were Taliban, I would shoot from behind this rock, and this would be my egress mm-hmm. route. And if I were, you know, in this position, I would do it from here, and this would be how, I, you know, and and it's like just seeing the tactical advantage that the enemy had for that battle or, or the various skirmishes that occurred uh, in that country really gave me a perspective for what the guys were up against during that battle. Right. And, and let me be clear, you know, I, we want your story as it yeah, pertains yeah. to it. And, and there are some, well, I don't want to, you know, let the cat out of the bag because I want you to tell the story, but there's a, there's a legitimate reason why you weren't there. And so we'll, we'll right. get to that. But you're there in September. This doesn't happen until the beginning of October. That month, what is the operational right. tempo like? What are you involved in? What is day-to-day life like for you? So I took command on September 20th, the battle that we will talk about October 3rd. <laughs> it was two so there weeks was later. Two, two <laughs> weeks, right? But I will tell you, it was a very, very hot and heavy two weeks. Um, uh, nearly every day, we were shot at with either uh, – Precision, precision small arms or rocket propelled grenades. I mean, nearly every day. Uh, sometimes as multiple times a day, and uh, usually it was in the middle of the day. And so the audacity that um, the fighters had, uh, looking down on us and shooting plunging fire into the camp. You know, I, I, I just remember being awestruck. In fact, my um. Uh, it was my the day I took command of of uh, the troop in the outpost, and I'm out there. You know, we start getting fired upon, and I'm out there with a set of binos, and I'm probably not taking nearly as good of cover as I should have been taking. And I'm just looking at them, and um, and so I call a fire mission with uh, white phosphorus rounds, and uh, you know, I mean, we have them in our inventory for a reason use them, but, uh, that they would continue to fire through white phosphorus rounds just showed how much that the terrain can play a role in providing cover for, you know, the enemy fighters, you know, if if they could take on hits, close hits, uh, by my measure uh, uh, of that type of, of response and still fire is just pretty, pretty, uh, 
um, troubling, I think, you know, just to say the least. And uh, then I remember that night bringing in the troop together and saying, hey, we're closing down Cop Keating. <laughs> uh, because my brigade commander and my battalion commander that day pulled me inside and said, Tony, your new mission is to close Cop Keating. And in fact, uh, we were in the process of closing down when the battle occurred. And uh, had the battle not occurred, we would have left that outpost anyways uh, just a few days later. And so I'm curious, in hindsight, you know, you had the extension on the first deployment and mm -hmm. the frustration that you went through losing guys on the extension. This base was closing down. Did mm -hmm. you feel the same sense of frustration because the battle happened on a base that you know, I, I always wonder why it takes us so long to leave when it comes to the army, yeah. right? Like it, soldiers are really good at one thing, going the hell home, right? And getting the hell out of Dodge. Um, <laughs> you know, hey, back, guys, let's pack this stuff up and get the hell out of here. Like you could have been out of yeah. there in probably two or three days, but yet yeah. you stayed there longer. D did you feel that same frustration post-Battle of Kambash? You know, I think that, and, and I don't want to speak for, for someone else, but I, but I will tell you that, uh, and I remember having pretty lengthy conversations with my former boss about uh, his frustration for having tried to close that outpost uh, on a couple of different occasions prior to that battle. Oh, really? And then, yes, and, and, and being denied that. I mean, hell, when he went over for the PDSS that February, uh, he and the brigade commander went to cop Keating and decided then and there that they were going to close it down, that they weren't going to commit forces to it. And, uh, no, lo and behold, that's not a decision that a, a, a battalion level commander has the latitude to make, or quite frankly, a, a brigade commander one, at least not at that time in the war. Now there's strategic reasons behind that, particularly because there was an election going on. Uh, and, you know, American presence usually meant a secure, uh, ballot boxes for the election. And, um, but, but what I will say is that, um, we, we did our job throughout that time frame, and, and there wasn't really a question in our minds of whether or not we should do it. That was our job. That's what, what we needed to do. But I think that the frustration came from the fact that all of the, not all of the, many of the uh, lines of air support that we needed. You know, you're you're up this high in the mountains. By and large, you need Chinooks to get around, and, and, a, and a, a Black Hawk can do it, but it can't lift a really heavy load. But the um, the challenge that we had is that we just couldn't get the Chinooks and the Blackhawks lined up with the Alum cycle, uh, and because they weren't readily available, because most of them were committed to Iraq or to looking for a Boebert doll as an example. And so if there was any frustration, it was that knowing that we as an army had the capability to get out, but knowing that for a lot of different reasons, some political, some technical, we couldn't. And so we just had to sit there and take it. Um, and so looking back on that, I think that's where I get the most frustration. Now, I personally didn't live through that frustration because as it was for me on day one, I had the support and was told you're packing out. It had just, that was months and weeks in the making to make that happen all right so the date of the battle is october 3rd you're not mm -hmm. there for a legitimate reason what happened right yeah so uh on september 30th um i left the outpost <laughs> so uh i had i was still in the midst of my change of command 
And by that, what I mean is my, you know, property inventories, but, you know, mostly. And so there was some, there was some property that we needed to get account of that uh, I hadn't seen yet. And um, I also really needed and wanted to get up to OP Fritchie just to check on the soldiers to ensure that we were using it to the best of its capabilities. And uh, so our plan was on October 1st, we were going to patrol up the mountain to to spend some time at OP Fritchie and I could spend some time with second platoon who was up there. Before you um, go deeper, but, just, just sure. give, give the audience a scope of when you say patrol up the mountain, the, the, the plan, this is not an easy like hike up a mountain. This is, this is an <laughs> elaborate task that takes a ton of planning because for those who civilians who are listening, who are not familiar, what would take you, you know, 15 minutes to walk on flat ground in America could take you three to four hours to do in Afghanistan because of the terrain, right? So a That's mile right. on flat ground would take you three to four hours. Uh, and, and the elevation of where you guys are, and again, go look at the pictures. You're not talking about like a gradual incline. This is a steep walk up a hit, up, up a huge mountaintop that's jagged edges and rocks and everything, correct? Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, just to kind of give you a sense, um, it is uh, just over – two kilometers straight line distance it's it's over uh, right about half a mile difference in elevation difference and you can't go straight line <laughs> i mean you're you're winding around there and so at a fast clip at a fast clip going down uh not up without enemy contact it's going to take you a few hours yeah uh, and so you know it was going to be a commitment to go up um but Lo and behold, there was an unexpected uh, supply helicopter flying into the area of operation. And so we got on the radio, asked if they could, they were going to drop some supplies off, fuel or fuel uh, uh, for us. And, and we asked them, hey, can we get a lift up to OP Fritchie? I mean, there's a HLZ up there. And so that was pretty common. We called it elevators. And so they said, yeah, sure, no problem. So they drop off supplies, a couple of kicker boxes and some some fuel and then they uh, they land. I get on with uh, a few key leaders from my third platoon, and we fly up. And as we're taking off, uh, the the helicopter is hit uh, by machine gun fire, enemy machine gun fire, and s- somehow, right? They they strike a lucky hit on the fuel line. Oh. Uh, the, the bird's doing evasive maneuvers, flies to. Uh, the nearest base where they were at the time, which was forward operating base Bostic on the other side of the mountains. And they landed and then they said, Hey, we're hit. Uh, we can't take y'all up to Fritchie or back to Fritchie. And they, uh, we unloaded and they linked it back to Jalalabad. And so there I was, you know, a relatively new commander uh, separated from my soldiers with a mountain pass in between us and no helicopters forecasted to come up to be able to take me back for some time. And so that's, those are the conditions in which, uh, you know, I had approached October 3rd, 2009. I would have um, been, before I, I would have been an anxious wreck. Like I would have been oh, like, I, I would have been screaming at everybody. Somebody get me a yeah. flipping helicopter and get me yeah. damn back to the unit. Yeah, I was living. And, but I mean, we were at that time in the war supposed to be getting one resupply helicopter per week up at these, and these are air-centric outposts. You cannot get there by ground. Um, in fact, funny story, I mean, this is a, a point in the war where the United States Army is still using pack mules to get water and ammunition 
from the outpost to the observation post. <laughs> like Andrew Bunderman went to the U.S. Army mule skinning course, and I'm not exaggerating. Yeah. <laughs> um, he seemed to skip over that in our, in our discussion. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, so we're supposed to expect to supply helicopter once a week, and at best we're getting them once a month. You know, this was the point in the war where they call it, they referred to it as the great toilet paper famine of 2009. It was a really horrible time to be a t-shirt sleeve or a sock if you're up at, at uh, O.P. Fritchie uh, especially. And so um, there just wasn't a helicopter coming for a while. All right, so do you have a conversation with the folks at Cop Keating that, hey, I'm stuck here, don't know when I'm going to get back kind of deal? Well, yeah, but, you know, before I left, I mean, it's it's pretty standing or standard procedure to, you know, issue a contingency plan. And so before I got on the bird, I uh, I pulled in Andrew Bunderman and a, the fire support officer named Andrew Schrode. And I said, hey, if something happens to me, uh, Bundy, you're in charge and in command of ground forces. Kaysen, you are in command of all things in the air and indirect fires. Uh, and I expect y'all to work maturely and as a team. And that was, that was the guy, you know, the guidance I gave him beyond that was, Hey, we're closing down. So here's a list of things that I need you to do to make sure that we're on track to be able to get out of here with the resources that we currently have. When I got to, uh, Fob Bostic, uh, <laughs> I called back and I was like, yeah, the table seemed to have turned a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm here at Boston. They're like, you're where? <laughs> yeah, but Boston, just continue with the plan. I'm going to work getting, getting air. Um, and that was, that was that. All right. So you're at Bostic, uh, and then the morning of October 3rd, you know, as early as 0600, I think if I'm correct, you know, Rounds start popping off and mortars start flying into Cop Keating. When do you first hear that you have troops in contact? I get a call. and So I have a command post at Bostic that has comms with uh, Cop Keating and OP Fritchie. Um, and we're also tied into the, the squadron main. So I get a call uh, through VoIP uh, Six six oh one, like it was. I mean, within seconds after the initial uh, uh, volley of fire, that Kaysen calls me, says, "Hey, sir, we're under attack. Uh, this is not like. I mean, almost immediately. Like, this is not like anything before. Uh, can I have your authorization for Stickney to use the mortars to support us from OP Fritchie? So there's a mortar pit with one twenty millimeter mortars and sixty millimeter mortars, and Stickney." is the private first class <laughs> that is acting as the mortar NCO right now because uh, one mortar sergeant uh, was away on R&R and then another had to go on emergency leave like two days before this. And so literally we've got just by happenstance for like a period of 24 hours where this one kid was going to hold down the fort. Uh, <laughs> and so Kaysen is calling because he's obviously concerned but he also wants to make sure that he can employ a private first class to do this job that normally a very senior staff sergeant would be doing. Right. Of course, I said, yeah. Now, this is up at OP Fritchie, correct? That you're That's getting right. the phone That's call right. from? Okay. All right. That's right. And now the reason, unbeknownst to me, was because the mortar pit at Cop Keating was already pinned down. Like that was the first thing that they targeted uh, when they initiated the attack on Cop Keating. 
Right. And, and for those who didn't hear Andrew Bunderman's episode, uh, you know, just to get, kind of give you some background, Opie Fritchie and Cop Keating came under attack almost simultaneously. Uh, and, right. and in doing so, in taking out the mortar pit uh, at Cop Keating, you know, you, you sort of lose that, I don't want to say sectors of fire, but you lose sort of combat power as these two locations worked in concert with each other. And I'm, I'm breaking it down for civilians who are listening so they don't uh, get lost in military folks know what we're talking about. But um, so it immediately crippled the capabilities down at Cop Keating. Normally, right. Cop Keating would have relied on OP Fritchie for help when they were in trouble mm-hmm. because they had the tactical advantage being at the top of the hill as opposed to That's the bottom right. of the hill. But That's because right. OP Fritchie was engaged at the same time, you kind of have to protect yourself first before you can provide any additional firepower to anybody else. But go ahead. I'm sorry. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, and people um, who have watched The Outpost or who have read the book even uh, might might lose sight of the fact that um, O.P. Fritchie was in a very, very uh, uh, tough contested battle of their own throughout the entire time that uh, Cop Keating was. In fact, right. you know, we always you – know, the stats are, well, there's – 300 Taliban fighters surrounding 53 American troopers at Cop Keating. Well, I mean, the truth is, is there's w- well over 300 fighters that are surrounding 76 soldiers at Cop Keating, which includes OP Fritchie. And in, and in fact, the, the 21 soldiers at, at OP Fritchie, we estimate faced about uh, a contingent of 85 to a hundred fighters. Jesus. And, and so the odds uh, were actually, uh, more in the soldiers at Cop Keating's favor than at OP Fritchie. You know, it was I think yeah. it was three to one at, at Keating and four to one at, at uh, Fritchie. Now, of course, Fritchie had the the advantage with the terrain, and that that made a world of difference for him. But you know, to, back to Kaysen, I you know I said, yep, absolutely, use use uh, Fritchie, and 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 I'm fine with Stickney um, calling the shots up there. And so, what he didn't realize was that Fritchie was also uh, under heavy attack and that the Taliban were specifically targeting the mortar pit at Fritchie as well. So he calls me back one more time, like a minute later, with another question. And and it's basically this. Hey, no one is helping us from squadron. We, we keep asking for help. We need to get something up. We need air support. No one's answering us. Sir, this is as bad as I've ever seen it. Uh, we need your help. And then he says, I say again, it's almost like it was in a movie. Man. I say again, and then blip the lines cut. <laughs> so like, and so that what? was the last conversation I had with Kaysen. And what had happened at that point is one of the RPGs that the Taliban had fired had inadvertently cut the telephone lines for the camp. And, and it hit the generator as well, which cut, you know, all kinds of power. But so they, they had lost communication capability um entirely in fact at that point uh first sergeant burton Kaysen, and bundy get together and hook up the tax sat and they're they're fighting the battle from that point on off of tax sats and icoms so the whole world could his, could listen when you lose communication i can only imagine the the anxiety and the tenseness you were feeling not being able to be there when you lose communication, you must have felt completely helpless. I did. So I, I, uh, as soon as he told me that, I said, Dixon, go tell, and there's a, the, the runner in the talk, uh, or the CPS said, go tell squadron that uh, Keating's under attack. So he runs out the door. 
it seconds later is when the line is cut. And so then I hang up the phone and I, I run out the door as well. By the time I get to uh, the talk, which is, you know, probably a couple hundred meters away, the squadron talk that is on Fob Bostic, they're already reporting uh, the first enemy KIA. Or excuse me, sorry, the first friendly KIA. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's when I really felt. Now, wait, when you say the first KIA, was it up at Fritchie or down at Keating? At Keating. So okay. Fritchie actually had zero casualties. killed in action. Okay. That's right. They had a lot of casualties, just none of them were killed. Um, but uh, Fritchie did, right? And and so, I mean, it was, it was deeply, deeply troubling. So when and, you hear the first KIA, do you get the name? Yeah. So at that point, it was, you know, we Thompson, we later found out was the first one we think to have died in right in the battle. But the first name that I actually get is Scusa. Okay. And um, and of course, I had had the key leaders from Third Platoon with me on the plane or the the helicopter that was separated from the troop. And Scusa was a Third Platoon soldier, and so you know we're all are taking it pretty hard. You know what I what I also knew though was all right. Now we have casualties. Now medevacs coming, and I know that when medevacs come. They always stop at Bostic to refuel before going any further because of the lift capability required of, of those aircraft with going at such high altitudes. So um, I knew that a medevac was coming. And so, you know, we immediately threw ourselves into preparing everything we could for like our own little miniature quick reaction force of like six dudes that included JTACs to hop into the medevac so that when the medevac land to start evacuating the wounded and, and the dead, we could jump out and rejoin the effort. That's not what happened. <laughs> that was our, that was our plan. Best laid plans, right? Yeah. What actually did happen? So uh, in reality, we flew, we started going to Keating and we flew above a certain mountain pass and we just stayed there hovering in the air high above the earth for I, I mean it felt it felt like an eternity it was probably in reality for almost an hour the the pilot passes a back a note back to me on like a pad of paper and he says uh the hlz is too hot uh we are going down to refuel roger i passed the note around they fly back to bostic they go back down they refuel while they're refueling i take the time to run to the talk to get an update the, the operations officer, the S3, hands me a a map of Keating. It's basically, you know, like a just just a PowerPoint layout of all of the the buildings on the camp, and they've got colored in red everything that the Taliban owns, and the Taliban owns a lot. I, I learned that they're already on the outpost. They're already running through the outpost. They they own what looks to be about like easily half of the outpost. I grab that. I go back to the helicopter. We get back in, and um, people are throwing all kinds of ammunition on the helicopter for us. And, I mean, just like what on you know when when the lieutenant and when the captain have grenades, there's a real there's a real problem, right? And um, and I remember, you know, one of these as we were about to take off, one of the grenades was still unsecured, so I grabbed it, and. Um, and I'm holding it in my hands 
kind of bobbling and thinking about what's going to happen next as we are now ascending, going back to Keating in the medevac bird. And the JTAC looks at me and he, he yells loud over the, uh, the radio. He's like, sir, what's in your grenade pouch? And he's pointing to my grenade pouch. And I was like, Oh, it's a camera. (laughs) And so I, I took out my camera. Now these were issued cameras that we had because I mean, we're reconnaissance scouts. A lot of the things that we'll do, we'll take images and upload them on the various platforms that we have to be able to uh, submit our reports and to, to provide the best and latest information that we have. And he's like, how about you put the grenade in the grenade pouch? <laughs> like, I can only imagine like how nervous he was to see like this, you know, this punk ass captain holding a grenade. And so I, I laughed and put it in. And that was the last time I remember laughing Yeah. Um, for a really long time because we flew to, to uh, Keating again. We hovered over it again and the pilot passes me another note and says it's still too hot and then he passes me another note several minutes later it's still too hot and he's like okay i'm going back to refuel and so we go again and and so like i've wasted you know a a few hours trying to get to keating just with this medevac and as i'm as we're landing i see coming into fob bostic uh, Chinooks, and I immediately know that it's the Quick Reaction Force, right. an, an infantry company that had been cobbled together along with a uh, a special forces team and some commandos. And uh, and I was like, thank God, now we'll actually get to to Keating. Right. And so we land, and I I just distinctly remember running back into the talk and getting another map, from, an updated map from my S three, and this time it was almost all red. I meant to ask you, I've been trying to, you know, when you first saw that first map, now you see the second one. Is your thought, there's no way anybody's getting out alive? Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, I remember stopping by some Apaches that had had landed just before us. This was what I later found out was the first crew of Apache fighters that uh, went to, uh, to support the guys at Keating. And they were, I mean riddled with holes and and uh smoking like smoldering and i remember stopping and talking to the pilot real quick and you know i always thought like apache pilots were just really really cocky and really sure themselves because they had just some some great equipment and they were war fighters they were armed to the teeth and i stop and i talked to this one uh one officer and he's smoking a sugar cigarette and his hands are shaking and i couldn't tell you the words that he said I wish I remembered, but I, what I will tell you is I remember walking away from that conversation with him thinking if he's scared and he doesn't think that they're going to make it, then this, this shit is real, this real. And then when I saw the map, uh, you know, I immediately thought, well, all right, this is, this is it. And, and, um, you know, flashback to your first day, you know, my first day in Iraq where, you know, you get a lot of, you do your job a lot better when you accept the fact that you're not going home. Like that was the, that was a thought in my mind. Well, I knew I wasn't going home anyways, so let's get to business. Um, and we fly with one half of the QRF because the other half was cut off by a storm. Uh, so we got one infantry platoon and one uh, special forces team on Oki Fritchie. And um, at that point, we're just, we're waiting because we're because we know how bad the contact is at cop keating um and so we're waiting for the other platoon and, and the rest of the reinforcements to arrive so we can go down in force do you ever get a chance and, to look at your watch and see what time it is 
about 12.30. Okay, so this thing had been going on for about six and a half hours already at this point. Yeah, it had been going on a considerable, considerable amount. What kind of updates are you getting via radio contact, if any at all? So very little because I've been in a helicopter without a tax hat for most of the time. Okay. Now when I'm up at Fritchie, I've got line-of-sight communications with Fritchie, or with Keating, so I can hear you know, a lot better. But I remember stepping – uh, jumping out of the of the Blackhawk that took me to Fritchie, and as soon as they fly off, you know it's like a brownout almost. I look up and there's Jordan Bellamy, the platoon leader for Second Platoon, and he's still in his boxer boxer briefs and a t-shirt with his with his gear on, <laughs> and he's like, "It's really good to see you, sir." And I was like, "You too, man. How are things at Keating?" And before he even had the chance to answer, like I hear just these massive explosions from down the valley echoing up and I'm like, don't answer. <laughs> and, and he's like, that's yeah, all day. And and then we walk up and, and I'm able to really get an, a, a good appraisal of the situation from Bundy over the radio. When you get the update, how do you process what you're hearing? And especially given, especially given you've seen that map, right? Because that's probably, yeah. The, the most in your head, you're, you're spinning scenarios at that point in time. Am I wrong? Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, at this point, there's several soldiers that are cut off from the, um, the main talk on cop Keating at, you know, at this point, uh, you know, like as an example, you've got, um, the El Raz Humvee, uh, with, uh, Gallegos, Larson, Martin, uh, Mason Carter, in, in one Humvee, cut off from the rest of them, you've got the mortar pit, who not only can they not use their weapons, not only do they not have good radio comms, but, you know, Daniel Rodriguez's best friend is dead at the door, and he can't even go outside to get him to pull him in because every time he does, Taliban shoot. And then the Taliban, I guess assume everyone's dead inside the mortar pit because you know it's dug in beneath the surface of the ground and so as you look out the door of the mortar pit you can actually see or he can see the taliban walking around right outside i mean you can hear him jumping on the roof of the mortar pit and so i was thinking god bless like um the what it must have felt like to be um the mortars or to have been someone in LRAS 2 uh, would have been absolutely horrific. For, for me, though, my biggest concern, Mark, is this. With, with the infantry platoon, the uh, team of special forces, and the commando, and the contingent of, of my own troopers that I have with the QRF, we have more people amongst us than are at Keating. So for me, I'm like, fuck this, let's go. Like, we, we need to right. go down the mountain. Understandably, the the company commander uh, of this company, uh, who had just been in Barjamatal, so he had seen his his fair share of some pretty tough uh, battles. Uh, he's like, look, we, we need to wait for for my other platoon. Like, we, we cannot do this if it's as bad as what we're hearing. Uh, and, and he, you know, to some extent, it's his, it's his company. I had to wait to the other extent, it's my battle space. And, you know, I had the, the latitude of the battalion commander and his guidance. And so, you know, I just said, okay, look, we've got until, you know, 
X time, once the storm passes, if the storm hasn't passed, then, then we've got to, to go. And so he agrees. And I mean, I, I think, I guess it was about two o'clock at this point. Um, according to reports. Yeah. It was about two (laughs) o'clock. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going down the mountain and it's just the, the one platoon. And we, we are assuming that since we're blazing our own trail, that the other platoon will at least be able to move more quickly. Um, since we will have, have fought through whatever contact there is. And so that's, that's what we operate off of. So we start moving and I mean, right off the bat, We've got LLVI with us and interpreters uh, right off the bat. As soon as we step out of the um, uh, of the wire of OP Fritchie, there's machine gun fire and RPG fire. Um, and then, I mean, moments later, an Apache <laughs> comes up over my right shoulder. And then moments after that, an A-10 comes up on my left shoulder at tree level and is just doing this gun run where it's just nailing these guys beautiful isn't it? and it, yeah and it, and it was it was silent for a moment but then on the lovi we hear that they're waiting in ambush for us and, and we're looking and uh, fortunately um the air force did most of the work that day i mean i i remember as we're walking down i say walking but you know we're patrolling down and i'm with the jtac and we're talking to the fire pilots and it's uh you know we've got 30 people that are at this location, uh, armed, just confirm it's not you. They would confirm it's not us. And they would confirm with Andrew Bunderman that it wasn't anyone at Keating. And like with, you know, between us, like we eliminated all the possibilities for friendlies. And then I'd give my initials and we'd drop, you know, 500 pound bomb here, you know, 2000 pound bomb there. And I remember some of the bombs were so close that, uh, we could feel the shock waves, rushing through us as we moved down the, down the mountain. We could, you know, I, I watched. What's that you know, like? <laughs> well, what's, what's alarming is when you feel a shock wave and then you look up and, you know, the dead leaves on the trees are knocked off of the tree and they're floating down. Right. I mean, it's like, it, it's, it's pretty unbelievable for me. I, I think the most impressive, uh, you know, dynamic, acrobat that i saw was was the a10 i mean at one point it it came down so close to our position that not only could i could i see the the belly like the individual plates on the belly of the aircraft but it got so close that it knocked me and the guys around me off of our feet like from the force of the g's And, and and i just remember thinking right right as it did that it, it dropped a bomb in the distance and, and peeled up. No, I guess it got, did a gun run in the distance and peeled up. And I just remember thinking, thank God they're on our side. <laughs> it's, it's incredible. But, you know, Mark, for me, stop me if I'm going on too long. The um, I, I think that the real image that sticks with me is at some point, as we're starting to get closer to Keating, um, I start seeing dead Taliban bodies. And I mean, the trees are just, they look like they, they survived a, a volcano eruption or something. It was, it's just incredible how dark and ashy and, and torn up they were, um, could have been on another, another planet. And, and for whatever reason, when I, when I realize that I'm counting dead Taliban bodies, I'm on like 25, 
I mean, there's just so many dead Taliban. And as we're making our way down, uh, you know, in the final several hundred meters towards Keating, I keep counting, and the, and the death toll for the Taliban gets higher and higher. And I just make this deal with myself. I, I couldn't, I couldn't rationalize why I was counting. I wasn't conducting a battle damage assessment of how effective our aircraft were or our artillery was. Um, but I made this deal with myself. I said, okay, I'm either going to stop counting dead bodies when I get to 100, or when I reach. Uh, the outer perimeter of Cop Keating. And I stopped counting dead bodies well before we reached the outer perimeter of Cop Keating. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, you know, having personally counted a hundred and, and estimating easily another 50 more on top of that. Um, and who knows how many were wounded. Uh, you know, the estimates, that's how you know. That's how at least I personally was able to substantiate the estimates that the official report concluded of uh, 300 upwards of 350 Taliban fighters. Um, you know, I I saw half of them with my with my eyes. So that's wow. that's what sticks to me, and that's for me. That's I'm not bragging about. No, I I don't think you are. I don't think kick, anybody thinks we you kick are. Their ass, right? I mean, I I, I think that um, you know, there's nothing. To, there's death is not something to be bragged on. Um, but I, I think it just puts into perspective, you know, what the guys did that day. Yeah, uh, and I think you know it encapsulates it. Now you finally get to Cop Keating at what time? It was it was not, it was dark, so I would say it was like probably eight or nine p.m. Yeah, I mean, is that what is that I, what the reports? Say? I'm looking at the official <laughs> report. Well, it says you guys departed. Um, the, the way it's written up, QRF with second platoon departs. Uh, ODA and ANA with uh, ANA commandos to OP Fritchie, and that was at two fifteen, fourteen fifteen. When it says QRF two conducts link up with B trip on Cop Keating, it says nineteen o two seven o two p.m. Okay, there so but and, and and I say that just because as we discussed earlier, it took you five hours on foot to get oh. down there. Yeah, and that's with only one close ambush. Right. I mean, that wasn't that, that was a rel- relatively speaking, not much contact, not much direct contact. That's unreal. I, I just I, I mean, God. Yeah. <sighs> OK. Uh, when you <coughs> first link, when you get there uh, and I mean, I, I assume the first thing you do is try to figure out where all your people are and who is alive and who isn't. Yeah. The first thing I do, um, I saw. uh a thin figure in the distance and you know it was andrew Bunnerman, and so i just walked up to him and i just said hey you've done you've done a hell of a job and i remember andrew just his response was silence right um and you know, in truth, no words would have been sufficient to describe the thoughts and feelings that Bundy's silence seemed to register. And and I think after after thinking about and and learning about what he did and what the rest of the soldiers did, you know, I I really I really understand why, right? I mean, we yes, after that we handed off uh, defense of the perimeter to the QRF, and we started really just getting a sense of who was where and how they were doing and what 
what kind of ammunition stores we had. Because quite frankly, we thought there was going to be a counterattack. Um, and so that's what we were trying to get prepared for. So we started cross-leveling ammunition. Uh, we put some guys down for rest, started, you know, started doing that. And I started uh, walking the perimeter and checking on the soldiers. And I remember at, at one point looking back um, behind my shoulder and the talk had, had caught fire earlier that day, but I, I guess they had managed to put it out. But it, the flames had started back up again, and it looked like a puddle of fire dripping down from the ceiling into the floor of the of the talk. And I and I look back, and I realize that it's on fire, and it's about to just go up in flames. And like soldiers are just like staring at it, like staring a thousand yard stare, right? And and I remember likening it to when you see someone in a dark room watching a TV and, you, and you're looking at their face and you see all the different colors from the commercials, like dancing off their face. Like that's what their faces looked like in this days that they were in. I was thinking just like, why is no one doing anything about the talk? So I ran over there because we still have a lot of classified information uh, in there about uh, people in the area. And we have a lot of equipment that we still need. And I grab, uh, a couple of the lieutenants with me and we start carrying out equipment. Um, and the second time we went back in, the smoke had already grown so thick that, you know, when we came back out from grabbing, you know, weapons and rucksacks that time, we were all doubled over thrown up and we went in the third time. And, and this third time, you know, we're crawling on our knees to try and grab stuff. And I'm like, this is absolutely insane that we're doing this. And I, I remember seeing a tinge of, of red cloth uh, in the corner down by where the XO sat when he was there. And it was my, it was a troop guide arm. And so that was the last thing that I grabbed as the building literally was falling down. And, and uh, I come out and I mean, we were all in a pretty bad way after that. It was, it was a really stupid thing to do having just been through the battle that, you know, now I actually, I risk my life <laughs> by some stupid fire for some stupid equipment. But I'll tell you that, um, I guess for me, I mean, you know, you know, the importance of the, of the colors or the, yeah yeah you know, and, and, and so for me, like there was just something spiritual in that, that I had to get. Um, and then I go about stumbling the rest of the, uh, rest of the way around the outpost, like continue to pick on guards, gagging as <laughs> It's like going, but you know, as the night comes to an end, it's really late at night. Um, first Sergeant Burton comes up to me. He's been looking for me and he says he didn't make it. It's the first words that I said to first, first Sergeant Burton or the first one Burton said to me that whole day said he didn't make it. And I knew exactly who he was talking about, you know, and, 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 all, all day, one of the many soldiers that those guys had fought so hard to protect and save is a, is a, a guy named Stefan Mace. And Stefan had been shot in the stomach uh, when he must have been en route back to El Raz 2 when the battle first kicked off. He, didn't, he was off of guard duty and ran back to his battle position to, to take it. And so you have... Um, Larson, Gallegos, Martin, Mace, and Carter in this one truck, and they've got a wave of Taliban fighters just coming to to their truck. I mean, their truck is 
peppered with these huge spider webs on the windshield from the RAB RPGs that detonated as an example. And, um, so they determined like they either have to run or they're going to get overrun. So on the count of three, they all jump out with the intention of Carter and Larson covering fire while Gallegos, Martin and Mace, uh, run to, a, a, a latrine that's like 40 meters away. And it's a, it's a reinforced concrete latrine. So it's a bunker essentially. And as soon as they get out of the, of the truck, an RPG detonates between them and it shatters Stefan's, um, Stefan's legs. And so Gallegos and Martin continue to run. Larson tells Mace, Hey, you got to cowboy and keep going. So Mace is literally like dragging himself along the ground, trying to catch up with Gallegos and Martin. And, um, and, and Gallegos gets all the way back to the latrine He's behind cover, and he looks back, and he sees Mace dragging himself on the ground. And so he runs back through, you know, to, you know, being shot at the entire way, 40 meters, picks up Mace and helps him to the latrine, somehow gets back there, running this gauntlet a third time, and uh, is still alive and, and uninjured, to the best of our knowledge. And now the plan is is that he's going to provide a base of fire so Carter and Larson can join them. And so he comes around the corner to to put down some fire so they can start running. And right then, a Taliban fighter uh, shoots him and kills uh, Gallegos. So Mace is now stranded on the other side, and Carter sees this. And after a period of time, uh, runs the same gauntlet that Gallegos ran. I'm, I'm, I'm truncating the story significantly, but runs and, and performs first aid on Mace, picks him up and brings him back to the Humvee, you know, a feat for which Carter was uh, rightly awarded the Medal of Honor and Gallegos was ultimately awarded the Distinguished Service Cross. And so there they were, uh, Larson, Carter and Mace stuck in this vehicle. And they finally are able to make contact with Bundy again in the talk because Carter managed to, to find an ICOM on Gallegos's, uh kit. And um, they come up with this plan to put down like a, a just a, a huge show of force and as much uh, fire from the sky as they can and uh, provide something of a force field, if you will, so Larson and Carter can evacuate Mace, who is losing consciousness at this point because he's lost so much blood. To, to the aid station. Well, they get to the aid station. And at this point, this is, you know, after, after noon. And um, Chris has, Chris Cordova, the, the medic or the, the PA in the aid station is, is expecting him. And so they immediately go to work on Stefan and they can't even get, you know, his pulse is so fast. They can't even stick with an IV. So they, so the, the senior medic, Shane Corville finally gets him with, uh, an IV in the jugular oh, and God. Chris confirms his blood type and conducts, you know, to what our knowledge was the first whole blood transfusion in the middle of combat um, by first sticking a kid named Floody, uh, Cody Floyd after he transfuses a unit of blood Mace begins to uh, regain, you know, some color in his, in his face. 
and he starts to regain his consciousness and he's moving his eyes and mouth and he starts clearing his throat and he's opening his eyes and all this, all the soldiers lean in. What is Mace going to say? And he asks, uh, Cordova, he says, doc, can I have a cigarette? <laughs> and, and, uh, we're like, no, you can't have a cigarette. Typical because Joe's man. <laughs> you can't have a cigarette, man. But you know, um, he still has internal bleeding. And so after less than an hour of time, he starts losing consciousness, consciousness again. And, uh, Chris gets another blood donor and does the, another transfusion. At one point in the day, Chris sticks himself. He sticks Bundy. You know, soldiers were fighting the Taliban in relatively close combat, and they would uh, withdraw from the fight to the aid station to donate blood to keep Stefan Mace alive. He had wild. been hit initially just after 6 a.m. He was unconscious when he arrived at the aid station. And when he left later that night, after we had got there with the QRF and secured the HLZ, the first medevac came in, and Stefan went on it with an infuser of another unit of blood, wrapped, you know, and he was wrapped in a blanket. He said, you're going to make it, man. And um, when he got back to, to Bostic, uh, the surgeon who anesthetized them for uh, uh, life-saving surgery – explains what happened next like this. He said, Stoney, you know, the best I can explain it is that um, when I put him under for the surgery, he lost his grip on life because he lost his ability to, to will himself to live, you know, and, and the brothers in battle who literally had, had given their lifeblood to keep Stefan alive, you know, played such an integral role and him being able to share his last words and to get a laugh. And, and really, I mean, I think for in, in many cases, he symbolized the hope. He and Chris Cordova together symbolized the level of hope because the soldiers who fought knew that they were going to be there to keep each other alive as they kept Stefan alive. And so when First Sergeant Burton turned that corner at midnight or one in the morning, whatever it was by that point, and he says he didn't make it, I got I wasn't even there for any of it, and I was crushed. And then Chris turns the corner out of the aid station, and he sees the look on my face and the look on First Sergeant Burns' face, and it just levels him. I mean, it levels him. And, you know, you want to talk about some news that'll suck the life out of you. That that sure did. Figured it sucks obviously. the life out of me right now hearing it. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. I'm gut punched. I mean, so, it, it just yeah. Wow, Stony. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, but those are the actions that Chris performed and earned him the silver star, and Brad Larson performed and earned him the silver star, and Ty. Carter performed and earned him the Distinguished Service Cross, or excuse me, the Medal of Honor, and that uh, Justin Gallegos performed and earned him the Distinguished Service Cross. I mean, there was so much heroism on every corner of that battlefield, and I just feel like uh, the story of Stefan is, is such a shining example 
of what it means to deploy as an American soldier. I mean, that is just... and, and what it means to have a, a, a bond, you know, a brotherhood and sisterhood with the people with whom you deploy. So. That, that is the yeah. most amazing story. Uh, I don't know. I've heard anything like it. I don't know that I've, I've heard anything like that. That is words. Can't even describe it, brother. I mean, I, I wow. Yeah. I mean, again, I, I just, I don't know how anybody listening to this thing isn't at least people who've been in combat. Um, you know, I'm processing the whole thing and I'm just, the idea that you can stop and give blood in combat, first of all, is maniacal because there's just not that wherewithal, right? It, it, for, sure. for many of well, us, survival instincts just take over. You well, know, Chris hadn't had the training for it either. And there wasn't like a medical journal that he could look up. There wasn't internet where he could YouTube it, right? I mean, like he just said, hey, theoretically, this should work. And did it. And, and because of that, you know, his actions then have really – uh, change the course trajectory for what buddy a could mean in combat. You know, I mean, he's, it, you know, the, the story, the anecdotes written up in all kinds of medical journals now. And, and, you know, they piloted great, um, blood substitutes for situations like this. I mean, there wasn't a refrigerator to keep blood there. You know? So anyways, it, yeah, it's it, pretty, pretty impressive what, um, the human heart and mind can do. I just uh, okay, so uh, that fateful day ends. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you know, a, a day later they they clear the area, um, and two days later, everybody is out of cop Keating and Opie Fritchie. Two days later, everybody's out of cop Keating. Okay, and then I, I go back to Opie Fritchie, and. I guess it's a day and a half after that that we finally clear O.P. Fritchie. Well, O.P. Fritchie is an interesting story. You know, I mean, that, that platoon that occupied that O.P. referred to themselves as the, as the forgotten ones. And it is it is uh, been a pretty appropriate name, you know, because they didn't have a Medal of Honor. You know, that came yeah. from the first platoon and second first platoon and third platoon. And because, you know, they were blessed with not having any deaths. um People forget or may overlook that O.P. Fritchie came very, very close to being overrun. And had it been overrun, unlike Cop Keating, they wouldn't have been able to stop it because they were so small. I mean it, it, it was so close at one point that Stickney raises the gun tube straight up on the mortar <laughs> so that he can fire mortars on, on enemy combatants. That are that close to, to 70, him. Yeah. yeah, 50 to 70 meters away. You know, they're so close and they're so low on ammunition. I shit you not. The cook <laughs> starts getting cans of Del, Mon- Del Monte sliced pe- peaches and throwing them to try and hit them as a projectile. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no you know, way. I mean, like, yeah, his, his, his platoon sergeant comes up on him when he's doing this and he's like, what the hell are you trying to do? Lure them in? And uh, then he gives them a box of hand grenades, and the kids like a you know like a kid in a candy store. Um, <laughs> I would imagine one's more effective than the other. I mean, Delmonte yes. uh, packs a powerful punch, yeah. pun intended. But but uh, you get but you get the point of of the desperation in yeah. which that that troop was. You know, and um, there's this this great description 
uh, you know, the sounds of war, as 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 Jordan Bellamy, the platoonier, calls it. You know, he's he's going down into his quarters to put on his gear to go back up on top of O.P. Frischie to try and get an assessment of what the hell is going on. And he said it was like he's standing in an orchestra hall with perfect acoustics transmitting the cacophony of the battle. And he's like, there was, you know, it was just symphonic. He's like, there's this concussive blast from the machine guns above. They were battering out the cadence, like a muffled bass drum. And he's like, there's these incoming projectiles that flew through the air with this shrill hollow sound and then rocket propelled grenades that crashed like a cymbal. And I was like, I mean, it's genius and it's beautiful to hear about like that. But at its worst, you know, the Taliban had Fritchie surrounded with numerically superior force. They pinned down the tower to the north, the mortar pit to the east, and the compound to the south. They were overwhelming the southern stronghold, having destroyed the Mark 19 grenade launcher and one of the tow systems. They landed direct hits on four soldiers. The machine guns were all out of ammunition. You know, indirect fires coming out of Keating and Fritchie were you know, ceasing to exist, you know, and they were, you know, if the South wall fell, the enemy was going to storm the camp. And so like, they just put every, everything they had on the South wall. And, and, and fortunately our theory is that the Taliban actually ran out of ammunition as well. <laughs> so, and so they, they re resupplied and moved South down to, to Keating. But I, you know, I digress. The, the, the best statement though is, is when Bellamy gives, assault to the mortar uh, uh, sergeant, well, PFC Stickney, and he says, hey, you know, do what you can, referring to take the south wall. And he says, Stoney, all that I heard was cuss words and gunfire. (laughs) 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 So, yeah, so we're back, right? We're out of Keating. We're out of Fritchie. We blow it up. Well, I was going to ask you about the, you know, on October 6th, three days later, they blow up Cobb Keating. Um, Yeah. Is there... Mixed feelings on that? <clears throat> I will say that... I mean, because in reality, like, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, but, you know, yeah. you got out of there in two days. As I said earlier, we're really good at getting the hell out of Dodge. Like, why didn't we do this yeah. a month ago? Yeah. Well, part of it feels like defeat, right? Because you're yes. giving up ground. You're giving up ground and you just lost soldiers and you... And other units have lost soldiers and leaders. Um, on the other hand, like we were, we were, I think, ready to get out of there and to reunite as a troop. Right. Um, so, yeah, some mixed feelings. I think at that point, most of us were probably in shock and I was trying to figure out what the hell do we do next? You know, by all measures, the soldiers won the fight. But the cost devastated the troop. You know, eight Americans died, 19 were wounded, but now we lack the personnel, equipment, fortifications to be effective in war, yet we still had seven months remaining of our deployment. You know, the FM 100-9 is called Reconstitutions. I remember pulling it out and looking it up um, when I got back because it was the only field manual that might provide some guidance to commanders on how to rebuild organizations, you know, after something as traumatic as this. But it was 17 years outdated and and largely obsolete right the, the military of it, military literature available to me then um focused on small unit battles but none of the texts covered the difficult questions that i faced you know like okay is it better to send a suicidal soldier home for treatment or to keep him in afghanistan or how should i integrate replacement soldiers or how can i rebuild the trust between my team and the afghan army soldiers that betrayed them in battle you know oh by the way right 
there's the Taliban had essentially GoPros on, and there's there is footage of Afghan National Army soldiers who were stationed at Keating, who were fighting against the Americans on Cop Keating side by side at the Taliban. Right? How do you build? How do you rebuild that trust? Right. So as the commander, I had a I had to rebuild a troop in the midst of combat operations. I remember thinking to myself, like, how do I put together a unit that seems more broken than whole, right? I know the Army had systems to replace personnel and supplies. Um, having been in S1, I knew how to write awards, right? But I was unclear about how to repair intangible qualities, you know, like motivation or pride or, you know, after remanning and re-equipping and retraining the troop. You know, those were difficult tasks, but the real challenge was, like, how do I respond to – my soldiers who are struggling with post-traumatic stress, you know, <laughs> how do I restore, you know, morale? Um, that was the challenge that I faced as the commander. It wasn't the, the battle because I largely wasn't there. That said, you know, there, there's still things that take a toll on you. And I don't know if I'm equipped to answer this question, but I'll ask you, do you have to be at peace with your own PTSD or your own shit or your own issues before you can help somebody else when it comes to this stuff? Yeah, I think that's an individual answer. What, I, what I'll tell you for me is, and this was the case for a lot of the guys, I think, um, most of us suppressed it. Well, it's not right? Or most of us, most of us did not start seeing the symptoms of post-traumatic stress until long after that battle was over and, and long after we had returned home seven months later. So I, you know, I would like to think like if not being at peace, you have to at least have an awareness to where you can objectify the situation external to you. So maybe you could think rationally about how to confront the pain that your soldiers might feel that is not unlike the pain that you probably feel. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, Again, I, I don't want to reference Andrew Bunnerman much, but he went through a similar experience. Uh, mm. You know, he's such a level-headed, pragmatic guy um, yeah. that, you know, if it was bothering him, you'd never know, right? Like, you know him better than I do, sure. but that's the impression that I get in talking yeah. to him. He, he tends to process things matter-of-factly, scan, discard, move on kind of deal, uh, and, mm. and he's one of those people who are cut that way. I'm not, <laughs> you know, yeah. I, I have to process things cognitively and, and, and chew them up and spit them out and then put them back in my mouth again and, and do it all over. Um, for you, you know, when, when you try to talk to guys because you weren't there the whole day and because you were fighting to get there, did you find it hard to relate to what they were going through? Um, I would say no, because I'd been in fights and I'd lost sure. close friends in those fights previously. Um, so I didn't feel like I couldn't relate. Part of me felt like I didn't belong. And that's fair. In truth, it's, it's taken years for me to even be able to consider myself a veteran of the battle of Kamdesh, though I am, um, not in any kind of capacity like Andrew Bunnerman is or, any of the soldiers that were on Keating or Fritchie, but uh, I was there too, right? And, and it's taken a long time for me to be able to, be able to say that. Um, Why do you think it took so long? I think that <clears throat> I think that we like we we in the military 
like to figure out where we stand on the spectrum of experience and heartache and pain as it relates to how bad we might have had it during war. And I think that that is a really flawed way of looking at the experience of trauma. Instead, what I like to believe and what I've come to believe is that, um, you know, there's a universal aspect to pain. Pain is pain. No one's pain is greater than another's. Uh, you know, I, one of my best friends uh, died. A, a fellow cap, a fellow captain and West Point graduate, uh, a, a longtime friend who I grew up with, named Paul Pena, and uh, that happened shortly after the Battle of Keating. He was in Arkansas River Valley as a as a company commander and i think in some ways like that leveled me more than um trying to help my soldiers heal from the battle of keating because it was so deeply personal and and so when i look back on that you know i think it's real easy to be a quote-unquote flesh witness of war and tell someone who wasn't there you don't understand. You don't get post-traumatic stress. But try telling that to you know, someone who's been raped, right, or someone who's been in a car wreck and and, and lost their child. Our pain is pain. And so I, you know, I, I look back on it now, and I and I think, um, and, and having talked to a lot of the veterans deeply about this topic. What I suspect most of us were going through was the same thing that I was going through, and that was that every day I was reliving those moments in my mind, what if in every situation, if I hadn't got on that bird, had it been shot down, or if I had you know, done something differently with the QRF, or if we'd done something differently to help the troop recover in the days following. you know, And in the same ways that I did that, I won't name names, but I guarantee you that other soldiers and leaders – uh, found themselves brooding and maybe some even in a deep despair questioning whether they lived up to their potential and whether they did the things that they could do. And I don't see how we could ever blame anyone. But on the surface, after we remanned, re-equipped, and retrained, we went back to war. And so a lot of us just continued to suppress those feelings. And for some of us, It came out in various dangerous ways and others much more healthy ways. But I think that that's the plight of the soldier who returns home from a traumatic event like this one. You had obviously a lot of time between now and then a decade um, to process this all. What's easier now than was back then, not only in the moments after, but, you know, when you return from deployment and you, you have a chance to sort of decompress a little bit. For a long time, I just tried not thinking about it. For a long time, I think I had labeled myself as um, the commander who wasn't at the Battle of Candish. <laughs> cynical as that sounds. No, and but see, I, I think what you're doing right now is you're, you're kind of doing what you spoke about doing. You, you're you're, you're yeah. almost cognitively separating yourself from the yeah. incident well, to compartmentalize well, me, it. Yeah, yeah so, so let me continue then. So... For a long time, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to talk about it. 
there was a book being written. I didn't want to think about the book being written. Um, but it kept coming up. And at a certain point, and I remember exactly when it, went, when it was, it was when I was working on one of the first award upgrades for the battle. Um, I started thinking about how, okay, yeah, maybe I wasn't there in the same capacity that everyone else was. Um, but I was also the troop commander that helped as part of a team to put this unit back together. And that helped as part of the team to help to give these soldiers the resources that many of them needed to uh, confront and overcome their grief and their heartache and their their stress. And so um, that's gotten easier over time, right? It's got and, and now to where I almost embrace it, not because it's you know a point of narcissistic pride for me. But instead, you know, it's it's a significant moment in my life that defines the way I think about trauma, heartache, and pain. Yeah. So that's changed. I, I know. I mean, I, I think that's a, a healthy way to to look at it. Um, you know, when you start writing awards for these guys, uh, and, mm-hmm. and, you know, obviously Medal of Honor things are, are – you know, lengthy, lengthy processes. But is there any sense of pride in the fact that, like, you know, these are my guys? You know, I, I and I say that, and there may be NCOs, former NCOs listening that scoff at that notion. But you know, as a commander, we always say you're responsible for everything that happens and everything that doesn't happen, right? Mm-hmm. So you get blamed for the bad stuff that goes on because you're in charge, but you do get credit for the good stuff that happens, even when you're not there. Do you get any sense of pride that? Whatever prior training, whatever prior you know stuff you went through, there was some level of preparedness that you were a part of, and those guys executed that because you were their leader. Is there any of that? <clears throat> I'd like to think so. I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to think that I was part of that team, and and part of that uh, movement to overcome uh, that day. Um, for me, you know, I I certainly believe that having been, uh, an S1 who, for the people who aren't in the military, that's, you know, usually the personnel officer is S1 is also in charge of, of vetting and processing awards, uh, for a unit, for a battalion size unit or a brigade size unit. And having been an S1 and having, uh, you know, I'm getting a PhD in English, right. Having the ability to write, uh, that I, I played at least some small part in helping to tell the story of my soldiers' heroism and sacrifice by ensuring that they got the awards that I thought they deserved, um, or that their leaders thought that they deserved. So certainly, you know, I have pride in that. But uh, you know, on the other side of that coin, um, while you know, I can look back and say we did it, and, and we went back and and and. And just, you know, a, a quick correlate to that is, you know, the last 40 days in combat were absolutely harrowing. I mean, for every day for the last 40 days of combat, our soldiers, you know, my troop was either uh, sniped, blown up, ambushed, or in some type of considerable tick. <laughs> I mean, it's troop in contact. Uh, so, you know, that we were able to go through that after having been through something like Keating, I think says something. But on the other hand, you know, there's things that still keep me up at night, right? And and one of them is, 
I never will ever feel like I can do enough to honor the memory of the deceased soldiers. And I am haunted by whether I've done right by my soldiers and their families and by telling their stories, right? And that's everything from talking about the guys at OP Fritchie to award upgrades. And, you know, for the, for the record, I mean, there's been two awards upgraded, two Silver Stars to Distinguished Service Cross. That's Bunderman and uh, Gallegos. But, you know, I'm not at liberty to discuss it, but there are more out there, right? There are more potential award upgrades going through the wickets. And that's because, I mean, even as recently as today, you know, I was looking at uh, an award upgrade packet that I've been working on. And, and so I feel like it's not because I can never do enough and it's not because I'm, I'm trying to get, you know, you know, awards racked up, <laughs> if you will, uh, as cynical as that might sound. It's because the more I study this and the more I read through the sworn statements from the soldiers – in the days following the battle, the, the, you'd be surprised how many times details pop out, me, out at me that I was not aware of while I was in command. And those contextualize uh, gaps in the narrative that, that sometimes warrant an additional chapter of a book or warrant an additional award. And, and you know. It's not all about the awards. I just use that as an example for one way that we can do right by our soldiers. Because I think far too often leaders cop out of of recognizing their soldiers for things that maybe they consider their job, but in my book, um, you know, that they deserve. So, when you found out that they were writing a book on this and making into making it into a movie, were you happy? Bothered? Didn't care? What were your feelings and thoughts? You know, I kept a pretty detailed journal during that deployment. And so for me, when I found out that Jake Tapper was writing a book, um, I looked at it as an opportunity to tell my soldiers stories. It took me a minute to get used to the idea of it. But once I did, uh, and once I adopted that approach, um, I shared with Jake everything that I had. And I think that it helped him. Um, I was a little bit more unnerved when I heard that they were going to make a movie about it because I know, uh, you know, what typically happens with movies that are based on true stories is that they get bastardized uh, for Hollywood. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Kind of, kind of like the movie Lone Survivor was, it was, it was completely bastardized for Hollywood. Yeah. And, and I, uh, you know, in truth, I have not seen Lone Survivor, so I can't uh, make a value judgment. I can tell you, I've read the book and I've seen the movie and, and, uh, Nary do two roads cross that are actually factual there. <laughs> well, you know, so I remember reaching out to the director to voice my concerns. And he, um, you know, let's be, let's be candid. I mean, he, he, he is in many ways kind of has his hands forced to make some changes to accommodate a book that covers several years into a two hour cinematic production. Right. So, I mean, there's going to be some changes that makes many of it that is which that he conflates major characters all into the same unit. And some characters are composite characters. But I remember talking and voicing this concern. He says, hey, you know, what? I tell you what, I'd love for you to just come out and see the filming. Tell me what you think. And so I do. And um, he called me once a week from the moment that he began the project until the moment that it ended. This is Rod Lurie, a, a, another West Point graduate and military veteran. Um, 
And sometimes it was just to check on how he's doing. Other times it's like, hey, here's the scene that we're shooting. Do you have any information that might help us make it more accurate? And usually what I would do is refer him to people like Chris Cordova, right? Or, or Ty Carter, who ended up being an advisor for the film. Um, but so I was nervous at first, but w- what I will tell you is that uh, I came around on two points. One is after watching the movie, it's not com- completely accurate, but it's honest, right? And it's honest in its depiction of the services and sacrifice that our soldiers uh, provide in this very harrowing time frame. So th- there's there's honesty there. Uh, you know, I mean, it reminds me of this quote from Tim O'Brien and the things they carry. Where he's like, "There's no such thing as a true war story, right? If you're writing a true love story, then or a true war story that's not really about war. It's it's really about love." Right and sacrifice, and so I, I I kind of revised my perspective on what what that might look like for the film. But then the second is this, you know, J- Jonathan Shea is this um, psychiatrist that used to work for the um, Department of Veteran Affairs uh, clinic in Boston, and he wrote several books, uh, one of which is called uh, Achilles in Vietnam, and another one's Odysseus in America, talking comparing the Iliad and the Odyssey to Vietnam War veterans. And, and the challenges of coming home. And in it, he talks about the communalization of grief. And what, what he means when he says the communalization of grief is, is something as simple as sharing the war story, right? Of, of the, the survivor of the traumatic event sharing his or her story in a manner that the listeners can not only hear and listen, but can believe and remember. And then, and then once you do that, the the circle of of grief is complete and and in that that's when healing can really occur and so i remember when i went to the set of the outpost and i went with chris cordova and it just so happened that on that day they were filming the scene where stefan mace arrives in the aid station and there's chris and me in 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 the back of the room watching this scene unfold and between each take they would look at chris who would clench his teeth and choke back tears and then give them advice on how to make that scene more realistic to match his memory. And it wasn't, I mean, look, I, I appreciate at that point the the level of care with which they tried to portray this story on film. But even more so, what I appreciated was that was for the first time that I saw one of my best friends on this planet relive his war story. I've been telling his story on his behalf forever because I'm the one who wrote his Silver Star, right? I'm, I'm the one who wrote the AAR that went to the general officers that were curious about what lessons Queen learned from the battle. But when I saw him and his story from his perspective, that's when I realized, oh shit, this is the communalization of grief that Shay's talking about. This is where the healing can take place. And I'll tell you, I mean, Vietnam War veterans go to Vietnam and some forms of exposure therapy to, to sites of their old battles. This was not unlike a pseudo exposure therapy for Chris and to some degree for me. And um, so I feel like if, if there's one thing that I would employ your listeners to do is that when they read this book or they, or they watch this film, they're not just watching a war story. You know, in many ways, if they will listen and hear and remember what's going on with those soldiers and their sacrifices, that they're part of the healing. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's amazing. Um, I, I wonder, you know, for you, when you add all this up, um, how are you different now than you were back then? Um, you know, I go back to that lesson I learned in Iraq that I would have told cadet Portis at West Point, right? Um, and that's that it can really happen to you. And that if you're, if, if I am, what I do as a leader is I treat every challenge or every deployment that I'm preparing for as though the worst case scenario really can happen to me. And I don't just prepare myself and my soldiers for that physically. Um, but I think through what it means to help prepare them and myself mentally for those events. Um, so that's, that's probably how I've grown as a leader. Um, as, as a, as a person, I would say that I'm just, I try to be, um, much more patient and understanding when I'm interacting with someone who's having a bad day mm -hmm. because you never know what tipped them off, right? You, you never know if it was because of something uh, real pedantic, like, you know, the barista at Starbucks messed up their pumpkin spice latte, or if it's, you know, for a genuine reason. And that just happened to be the trigger where three years ago on this day, uh, they lost their best friend in a very traumatic event. And then the building around them burned down and they lost, you know, all their personal gear and any reminders of home. And they're frustrated, not because someone messed up the pumpkin spice latte, but because the person in front of them threw a shit fit because the barista messed up his pumpkin spice latte. And he has no clue that, Somewhere over in Iraq or Afghanistan, there's a soldier who's going through something like that. Right. And so for me, I, I, I just I try to demonstrate um, grace. It's a perfect word. You mentioned or we mentioned earlier, you know, you're going through your Ph.D. right now um, at Duke. And part of that is relation to PTSD. What are you hoping to discover or prove uh, in your doctoral thesis and you know, where, where do you want this to go? What do you want your work to say? Okay. I was moved to write about suicide because I wanted to take on a project that has real implications in today's army. And because I've lost so many friends and soldiers from suicide. Um, so the best way to, for me to answer your question is probably uh, with a quick anecdote. And that is that um, in my studies, um, through at least one source that has cataloged war literature from the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, this statistic, I think, tells a lot. There are, according to this source, roughly 64 uh, single-author war novels about Iraq and Afghanistan, formally published by publishers, so not self-published, to date. This doesn't include, like, say, like romance uh, novels, which have their own genre. I, uh, you know, I, I'm talking the gamut. Um, of those 64, there are 28 veterans of those wars who have authored those works. So 28 
war novels about Iraq and Afghanistan or Afghanistan written by veterans of Iraq or Afghanistan. And I've read all of them. And an overwhelming majority feature soldiers who are grappling with suicide or with some type of fatalistic action in war, some of which we've described in, in, in this context. Um, to me, that says something, right? When, when, when a majority of authors from a corpus of work speak in unison about an issue that is so great that it requires you know, what I consider a work of art, a piece of literature to capture it, then we as uh, a populace and as uh, readers should listen to what they're trying to say. And so through my work, what I'm doing is I'm trying to dissect what it is that they're trying to say and see, you know, how their literature might illuminate an aspect of the human condition that can maybe clarify or maybe complicate this epidemic of suicide that we're seeing among um, military veterans in our society. It's way over my head. <laughs> <laughs> well, I say that jokingly, but in the same respect, I mean, you know, there's, I mean, you talk about unpacking a lot there, you know, I mean, that's, that's not a simple answer. Um, and, and there's no straight line corollary because, you know, what we've learned is that there are no two, the public and the general masses will lump all suicides together, but we know that no two, no, no two of these suicides are exactly alike. It, it, it's That's not right. because two soldiers went through the same battle and they both killed themselves. They both must have been dealing with the same thing. That's not even remotely close to true. That's right. That's right. And they have different motivations yes. and reasons and tipping points. And so it's hard to keep from pathologizing it. And it's hard, hard to keep from stereotyping it. And so that's why I'm just trying to look at it as, a, as sure. an art form with the very specific characters described therein. And then, you know, readers can take from that what they will, I guess. Well, Stoney, yeah. uh, I, I don't think you should ever sell yourself short on your personal story um, of combat, whether it's at Kamdesh or in Iraq. Um, I, I uh, Hearing your point of view uh, and, and, uh, and hearing you tell it, uh, no one should ever consider you not being part of any of the battles that you were in. Uh, it really is just it, it's you, you give such perspective and life to um, the, the description of it that uh, it makes you feel like you're there. Uh, and, and from that, you know, you can only do that by being there. Um, it's one thing to be a good storyteller, but it's another thing to speak through experience. And, and I think you've illuminated that uh, in sharing your experience with us. Well, thanks for having me. And, you know, I think that's the. That's the mission that that I've taken on. I think you, you made the point earlier in in the podcast of, you know, once you're the commander, you're always their commander. And so I'll I'll get phone calls from a from someone who still refer to me as Captain Portis or Sir, and they've long since been out of the army, and I've long since moved on from being a captain. But I think that inherent within that responsibility is to do right, and by by them, and that that means being a voice for them if you have the chance. And so for me, like. That's that's what I'm shooting for. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do this, and I appreciate whoever's out there that may end up listening to this for 
staying with us so long because I know that we've gone way way over the average conversation. No, I mean, listen, again, it's it's your story. I want you to tell it the way you feel comfortable doing it. But I will tell the audience you're a great follow on Twitter, especially if you're military. And obviously, as I mentioned, <laughs> Stoney is still serving. So, uh, you know, as a steward of the profession of arms, which is, is a phrase that – Many of us uh, still use it. I think it's great. Um, but you, you you dive into, in an intellectual manner, the concept of leadership and how it's morphing and changing and what we need to be doing to uh, adjust along with an ever-changing force. And, and that's not a conversation we're not having enough of. You know, the, We know the Army yeah. is always a little bit slow um, to pick up on changing and things of that nature. They kind of drag their feet on certain things because, well, hey, what we've been doing has been working for so long up for debate, but that's neither a different discussion for a different day. And I hope my superior yeah. officers, aren't, officers aren't listening to this, but that said, um, you know, I, I think the challenge that you often present is for us to think about the leaders that we are, the way we want to be leaders and how we need to do things differently than we did before. And I, and I always think that's a positive discussion. Here, here. I appreciate that. And come in and join the conversation on Twitter. It's a conflicted space and we need more we need more conversation. <laughs> you ain't kidding. Well, Stoney, I, I, again, I thank you so much for sharing your story, your honesty, your candor, and uh, uh, making all of us a little bit smarter uh, in doing so. So, hey, thanks, Martin. Thanks to you and Matt for what y'all do. It's a great service, uh, and, and I'm grateful for it. Absolutely, Stoney Portis. Thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Like we're saying, you've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.